All right. So in this short video, I'm going to go over 10 proofs from the New Testament and the early church of Peter's primacy. Now, I have a huge list of these. A lot of these are actually um, things that were pointed out to me many years ago by David Armstrong, who is a Catholic apologist. And uh, I just figured I'd make a video out of this because a lot of people wonder about, you know, why the Catholics think Peter was the first pope, uh, etc. I've already got stuff on this channel. I've got a really nice long video already out there about, uh, you know, Petron primacy, why Peter is in fact the rock. But let's just take a look uh, really as quickly as we can. Obviously, this is going to go a little long, but uh, this is number one, number two, and number three, and they're all back to back to back. This is a threefold blessing given by Jesus. And uh, the context of this is they're in this area called Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus has his disciples who do men say that the, the son of man is and some say that he's john the baptist others say he's elijah others jeremiah one of the prophets come back from the dead and jesus says to them who do you say that i am and simon peter replies you are the christ the son of the living god and jesus answers him blessed are you simon bar jonah simon son of jonah for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven and i tell you you are peter and on this rock i will build my church and the powers of death shall not prevail against it i will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven now we see right here in this context, these three lines are a threefold blessing of Peter. And each blessing is in two parts, the blessing itself and the explanation for the blessing. So Petrum proof number one is Jesus tells Peter he is blessed because he has received revelation from heaven. Number two, he tells Peter that he is renaming him to Peter. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church and the powers of death or the gates of hell, however you want to translate this, will not prevail against it. Again, I have an entire video on my channel talking about uh, Peter here in Greek being Petros uh, versus uh, the word rock being Petra. And the simple fact is in Greek, as in many other languages like French and and Spanish today, language has gender. And Jesus is giving Peter a name, a name that's meant to identify him as who he is to everyone and to identify him uniquely with Jesus and his ministry. And so Jesus is simply taking the name or the word Petra and turning it into a name and making it masculine so that he's not calling Peter Mrs. Rock. I'll point out in a minute, but we actually know the real name Jesus gave him was in Aramaic and it was the word Kepha. And the word Kepha simply means a big boulder. In Greek, the word Petros can mean a little stone, but in fact, according to even Protestant scholars, um, within 200 years before the time of, of Christ and his apostles, the words Petra and Petros were pretty much interchangeable. And if somebody wanted to speak of a little stone, usually they would use the Greek word lithos. In Aramaic, the word for a small stone or a small pebble would be evna. So we would actually be speaking most likely about Simon Evan or Simon 
lithos, <laughs> lithios, uh, if Jesus was in fact trying to tell Peter that he was going to be uh, an insignificant rock versus the, the, the rock being the faith or the profession of faith that Peter's making. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't also understand multiple aspects of what the rock can be, because sometimes that's just how Scripture is. Jesus, in fact, we know, is the rock, right? There's multiple passages in Scripture where Jesus is called the rock, the foundation of the church, but other times he's called the capstone with the apostles as a foundation. And so this is simply an alternate um analogy wherein Peter is the chief uh, foundational stone in a sense, right? He's being given a, a preeminent authority. We'll talk more about that authority here in just a second. But so that's the second part, right? And again, it's a blessing with an explanation. You are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the powers of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And this right here is unique. No other apostle is given the keys to the kingdom. And if you've never really thought about this passage, you may wonder what those keys are. Um, and we live in a life, we live in a, in a time when everybody has keys. You probably have five or six on your key ring right now, one for your car, maybe one or two for your house, maybe one for, you know, a, a lockbox or a dress or d dresser or desk that has a lock to it. Uh, maybe one for a safe, one, maybe one for a desk at your office. You know, it's very, very common to have multiple keys on the key ring these days, but there was a time when it was very rare to have a key and a lock because it was simply an expensive item to make. And so most people didn't have keys because most people didn't have locks. And in the time of uh, Jesus and the disciples, usually those would be um, reserved for people who were wealthy or who had power. But in fact, in the Old Testament, in the Davidic kingdom, there was a specific office holder. And that specific office holder was for somebody who was the bearer of the keys. The king's job in the Davidic kingdom was to be off fighting for his kingdom, fighting to advance his kingdom, fighting to protect his kingdom. And in his stead, the king would leave ministers. Now, these ministers would have authority to make decisions in the king's stead. But sometimes you would need to have a an elevated minister, a minister who could make decisions independent of the other ministers in case they needed a tiebreaker or just in case you needed somebody to run and order the whole thing. And can you guess who uh, this uh, this minister in the kingdom of David, can you guess what he was given? He was given the keys to the kingdom and he was giving the ability that, uh, in fact, let me just pull it up. And here it is. So this is actually a defrocking ceremony in Isaiah 22 and the core passage is 22, 22, um, where we see the mention of this key and it's the key of the house of David, whatever he shall open, none shall shut, whatever he shall shut, none shall open. If we see this passage in its context, we'll scroll down here again. It's actually one of the things about this passage is it's a defrocking ceremony. And so what it's showing is the office of the key bearer, uh, is a guy named uh, Shebna, and he is being thrust out of the office, and a new man is being put in, a man named Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And that's the thing about offices. Offices persist, right? Offices last longer 
than the office bearer. That's why we have at this point, is it 45 presidents in the United States? You know, most businesses that have a CEO, that CEO almost always does not outlast the business unless, of course, the business is just failing. And so what we see here is a defrocking ceremony where this bad steward, uh, and Peter's actually even called a steward multiple times. Uh, in Luke 12, Jesus gives Peter, uh, specifically Peter asks him about, to, to clarify on a parable, and Jesus replies with a parable about a wise steward. Um, and so Jesus is very clearly giving Peter this authority, and it literally is the exact language. This just, of course, this is written in um, in, in Hebrew versus the, the Greek of the New Testament, but literally it's the same power. I will put on his shoulder the key to the house of David. Whatever he opens, no one will shut. Whatever he shuts, no one will open. Whatever he binds, no one will loose. Whatever he looses, no one will bind. The keys to the kingdom, and this is the key to the house of David. Of course, Jesus is the king of kings in the line of David. Luke himself uh, definitively points that out when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her she'll be her son and he will be uh, in the line of David. That's also why both Luke and Matthew give us uh, genealogies for Jesus that trace him back to David as well. So this is number one, number two, and number three. And again, this is a threefold blessing. Each part is broken into a blessing and an explanation for the blessing, which is just one more good reason why it wouldn't make sense for out of the blue Peter in this passage to randomly refer to, um, to, to mean he was an insignificant little pebble, uh, versus the rock of his faith, the rock of his confession that literally wouldn't make, it wouldn't make sense. And it'd be like Jesus saying, Peter, you insignificant little pebble, you, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. But even if that was the case, all it would really do is show that Jesus was confident that uh, he and the Holy Spirit would be able to guide Peter into all things. And Peter, known for putting his foot in his mouth, would not be a danger to the church, but in fact would be protected. Because this is literally, this is a juridical power right here. And Jesus is telling Peter that whatever he binds on earth is going to be already loosed in heaven, right? He's basically saying, I'm not going to let you teach error. Now we'll see in a minute, that doesn't mean that Peter can't sin. In fact, Peter, again, puts his foot in his mouth all the time before and even occasionally after uh, the ministry of the apostles begins. But so that's one, two, and three. Number four would be this. Peter alone is given a new name and he's given the name Peter. But we know that Jesus spoke Aramaic. I think it's really interesting that in John's gospel, he actually gives us a series of these uh, where he's actually telling us what these terms mean. So he tells us what rabbi means. He means teacher. He tells us what Messiah means. It means Christ. And then he tells us what Kephas means or Cephas means. Everyone say it. This should probably be a hard sound. So this would be Kephas, um, which is, of course, just what happens if you take the Aramaic word of Kepha, and then you transliterate it, you try and spell it out in Greek, and then you try and spell that into English, which is why you see Cephas. It really should be probably rendered K-E-P-H-A, Kepha, uh, but again, that's what happens when you transliterate. We know that uh, the sons of Zebedee uh, are, are called Bonarges, right, the sons of thunder, but that seems to just be because they were brash and they were bold, and nobody goes around referring to them. Uh, in the New Testament as Bonarches, right? We don't really see that. 
Paul, of course, seems to get a new name uh, being changed from Saul. But actually, according to most modern scholars, it's very likely that he already had the name Paul. Um, it was very common for people in Rome, especially Jews, to have a, uh, a Roman name. So here is uh, a quick little entry from Wikipedia. And obviously, Wikipedia should never be the end of your searching. It should only be the beginning. But we do see a couple of citations here for this. Uh, it's actually been popularly asserted that Saul's name was changed when he became a follower of Jesus. But this is simply not the case. His Jewish name was Saul. Uh, perhaps after the biblical king Saul, a fellow Benjaminite, and the first king of Israel. But according to the book of Acts, he was a Roman citizen, and as a Roman citizen, he also bore a Latin name, which would have been Paul, essentially a Latin transliteration in some respect of Saul. In biblical, biblical Greek, it would be Paulus, and in Latin, Paulus. Uh, it was very typical for a Jew in that time to have two names, uh, one in Hebrew and the other Greek. You can find this in the Catholic Encyclopedia. You can find this in the Oxford University, uh, Oxford University Lewis and Short Latin Dictionary, uh, the letter of Paul to the Galatians introduction, which was posted on, because it's a citation from Google. Um, here we have Morrow, Stanley Morrow, Paul, his letters and his theology introduction to Paul's epistles from Paulist Press. Um, you can see the information there as well. Uh, again, here's a link from Catholic Answers. Why did God change Paul's name to Saul? So Paul got a new name to some degree, but really his new name was probably just showing his mission to the Gentiles. So he, he, he takes off his Jewish hat and he puts on his Gentile hat more or less uh, to show uh, that he was going to be preaching to the Gentiles. Uh, and if we read this continually, Jesus calls him Saul, Saul in the Hebrew tongue in the book of Acts um, when he had the vision that led to his conversion on the road to Damascus. Later, uh, in a vision to uh, Ananias of Damascus, the Lord refers to him as Saul of Tarsus as well. Um, and Ananias greets him as brother Saul. In Acts 13, Saul is called Paul for the first time on the island of Cyprus much later than the time of his conversion, the author, which is Luke, same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke, uh, indicates that the names were interchangeable. Saul, who is also called Paul. He's thereafter called Paul, apparently Paul's preference, since he is called Paul in all the other books where he is mentioned, including those that he authored. Adopting his Roman name was a was typical of Paul's missionary style. His method was to put people at their ease and approach them with his message in a language and style that they could relate to, as in 1 Corinthians 9. And so, really, that's it, right? Paul didn't actually get a new name, as far as we can tell. Paul was probably already his name, just his Latinized name, if you will. So, really, Peter is unique in being renamed, and renamed not just Peter or Petros, but Kepha, which, again, is Aramaic for a giant stone or giant boulder. So, there's one, two, three, and this is number four. Fifth, Peter is listed first in every single listing of the apostles. And in fact, uh, sixth Matthew calls him first. There's a reason for that, right? Every single time he is listed, he is listed first in any listing of the apostles and in any listing of people at all, except in Galatians. And this is the only time that Peter is not mentioned first. He's mentioned in the middle of James and John. Uh, and it's interesting because this comes right before Paul rebukes him, right? And, and this again shows that uh, though he was a leader in the church, though he could speak and write infallibly, nevertheless, he could still fall into error personally. And Paul rightfully 
chided him for, uh, as it's often said, fearing the circumcision. Uh, I like this one, fearing the circumcision party, which actually sounds like a really bad party. But <laughs> he was afraid of the Jews, and so he would uh, not spend time with the Gentiles, right? But literally, other than this passage here, not only is he listed first amongst every list of the apostles, but he's listed first every time he's ever listed, other than here. And again, uh, it's in connection with him being rebuked by Paul. Uh, so that would be one, two, three, and four, and five, and six. So number seven, um, Peter is given specifically by Jesus the command three times at the end of John's gospel to feed his lambs, tend his sheep, feed his sheep. You know, Jesus asks him, do you love me more than these? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter just gets freaked out. Eventually, he's like, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And Jesus just keeps responding. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. And he is telling Peter that he is the next shepherd. It's very common when we read a biblical account to insert ourselves into the passage. And certainly, I think there's room for that. We're all called to be shepherds in a sense. But Peter is very specifically uh, being treated uh, here uh, in, in a very, very unique way. And in fact, Jesus asks him three different times uh, because he's giving Peter a chance to basically renege on his denials. So if you'll remember, at the Last Supper, uh, Jesus actually told Peter that he was going to deny him three times. And what's really interesting for point number eight is Jesus told Peter right before he he predicted his denial that he was going to pray specifically for him. So this is in the context of the last supper and they're fighting about greatness and everything else. And then Jesus says this, Simon, Simon, that's Peter. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. This, this is plural you, this is plural you. But I have prayed for you, singular, that your singular faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And he said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you three times deny that you know me. But so notice the wording here. Jesus is promising to pray for Peter that his faith will not fail. And when he has turned again, so this just shows you that Jesus understands very clearly that Peter is going to lose faith briefly, uh, but he will turn back. And when he turns back, Jesus has prayed specifically for him that his faith would not fail, and he's now commanded to strengthen his brothers. Lastly, here's a couple of quotes uh, these are from early church fathers. Um, the first comes from Tertullian uh, on the prescription against heretics. And he simply says, in 200 AD, this is the martyr church, Peter, who is called the rock on which the church should be built, in case you had any question, who has also obtained the keys to the kingdom of heaven when speaking about Peter. And Origen writes this in a commentary on John's gospel. And Peter, on whom the church of Christ is built, against which the gates of hell will not prevail. That's number nine and number 10. So we can see here's 10 quick proofs, eight of them from the New Testament, 
and uh, a little dabbling, of course, in the Old Testament, and two of them from the early church fathers, that Peter most certainly had a primacy amongst the apostles. We can keep going. Um, in fact, here's a bonus 11th. Uh, Peter is listed, I believe it is, somewhere between 191 times and 212 times. I need to go back and check, and I think somebody counted them in a way that was a little bit differently. Um, but literally, he's listed around 200 times. The next most common disciple who is mentioned is John, the beloved disciple, and he's mentioned a paltry 40 times compared to Peter. That tells you just how preeminent of a position Peter had in the early church. Anyway, I hope you found this helpful. Obviously, I'm sure some people are going to have some comments about this or questions. Feel free to share those down below. If you like what I'm doing here, please feel free to hit that like and subscribe button. It gives me a little dopamine boost, makes me feel good about what I'm doing. And uh, otherwise, I wish you all well. God bless you and stay tuned for the next video.